Good evening. It's time for us to begin. Welcome to everyone. We will sing a couple of songs. I'm going to have a reading and prayer. Um, Brian Ward will take care of that obligation. And then we'll have another song, and then Chris will be uh, bringing the lesson. Uh, Thomas Trevathan has the closing prayer. First song is number 776. I'll ask that you stand if it's convenient for you. Sing the first, second, and last verses of Will Your Anchor Hold? <clears throat> Will your anchor hold in the storms of life when the clouds unfold their wings of strife? When the strong tides lift and the cables strain, will your Number 882. 882. And that's not the right song. 822. I don't know who was going to lead that other one because I was. That makes a lot more sense. I'm going to sing all three verses and then the chorus. Oh, what a wonderful, wonderful day. Day I will never forget. After I've wandered in darkness away, Jesus, my Savior, 
reading and prayer now. Our scripture reading this evening comes from Ezra chapter 3 verses 11 through 13. Ezra 3, 11 through 13. And they sang together by course in praising and giving thanks unto the Lord because he is good for his mercy endureth forever towards Israel. And all the people shouted with great shout when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the priests and Levites and chiefs of the fathers, who were ancient men, that had seen the first house when the foundation of his house of this house was laid before their eyes, wept with a loud voice, and many shouted aloud for joy, so that the people could not discern the noise of the shout of joy from the noise of the weeping of the people. For the people shouted with a loud shout, and the noise was heard far off. Would you bow with me, please? Father in heaven, we're thankful for this day, Father, and we're thankful for this opportunity we have to come here this evening to study from your word. Father, we pray that you'd be with us as we go through this study, be with Chris as he brings the lesson. Father, we're thankful for this, this day. We're, we're thankful for everything that you do for us. We're thankful for you sending Jesus to the cross to save us from our sins. Father, we pray that you would be with all the sick that were mentioned this morning. Be with them, be with the doctors and nurses that are attending to them. Be with us the rest of this week. Help us to be the examples we need to be. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Song of invitation will be number 653. 653 at the close of the lesson. Let's stand again and uh, sing number 937. We'll just sing it one time through. I stand in awe. You are beautiful beyond description, too marvelous for words, too wonderful for comprehension, like nothing ever seen or heard, who can grasp? Good evening. Have you ever been discouraged? Like, really discouraged. So discouraged that you just kind of want to sit down and not do anything. Tonight we're talking about a story of discouragement and how to overcome it. I'm going to be turning to Ezra, the book of Ezra. We're talking about uh, a guy named Zerubbabel tonight. 
I just imagine you don't talk about Zerubbabel very much around your house. <laughs> it's a fun name to say, um, but he is not a major character in Scripture, although he is in Jesus' genealogy. We've been walking through a series that we're calling Binge Reading Through the Bible. We're almost done with it. We've got Zerubbabel, and then next uh, Sunday afternoon we're going to be going through the story of Joseph. So we've got two more, uh, two more lessons in this series. Tonight we're in Zerubbabel. He is found in a couple of different books. He's found in the Old Testament prophets of Haggai and Zechariah. He's also mentioned in the book of Chronicles, as well as in Ezra and Nehemiah. In Chronicles, he gets uh, a notation. His name is there, but his story is not found there. His story is found here in Ezra, Haggai, and Zechariah. He is, uh, like we say, the descendant of David. He is the rightful king of Israel, but he was born in Babylon. And so he has not, never seen uh, Jerusalem. He's never been there. All the way up until Cyrus the Great in 536 B.C., comes along and says, I'm sending the Jewish people back. Cyrus has no uh, obligation to Yahweh, the God of heaven. Uh, he does not know him, but is aware uh, of, of Yahweh, basically. He knows his name and knows that he is the Judean's God. And so he sends Israel back, at least whoever wants to go back to Jerusalem. He sends them back. And it's not just the Jewish people. He sends back Whoever wants to go back to their, to their homelands. The Assyrians before the Babylonians and then the Babylonians after them were very much into squashing nationalism. They did not want you to gather together with a group of your peers, a group of the people who came from your country, and start waving your flag. They didn't want any of that. And so the way they squashed that was to take about half the population and spread them throughout the rest of their empire. And then they would leave a portion in their homeland and they would spread everybody else all throughout their empire. And so you could not find someone else to gather up with and start that rallying cry of rah, rah, Israel. There wasn't anybody there. And so the people that were um, in Babylon and then Persia, when Cyrus the Great conquers it, a great many of them were Israelites, but not all the Israelites were there in that place. And so when you see Israel leaving Egypt early on in their life, early on in their lifespan as a nation, they have 603,550 fighting men. That's somewhere around 2 million people, women, children, men, all told, somewhere around 2 million people. When they leave Babylon, when they leave Persia under Cyrus the Great, they bring under 50,000 people back with them. So this, this segment that comes back is quite small in comparison to what they could have been. Now, not all the Jewish people in Persia left. A great many of them stayed in Babylon and Persia, wherever they had been scattered. They just stayed there. Uh, during the exile, God has said, set up shop, have families, Set on roots, start businesses, find happiness here. Find your spot to serve Yahweh here. And a lot of them did that. And so when Cyrus the Great says, if you would like to go back in 536 BC, you can go back. I'll even pay for you to rebuild your temple and I'll pay to rebuild the walls. He was very, very generous. He's trying to incur the, the generosity, the, gra the graciousness of the gods that he's sending the peoples back to 
the homelands. So he sends everybody back and foots the bill pretty much for it. He's got money coming out of his ears. So money's really no option to him. He's the conqueror of the world at this point. And so he sends everybody back to their homelands with a pocket full of money to rebuild what was taken by the, by the Assyrians and Babylonians. And so in 536 BC, when Cyrus the Great does that to Israel, he's appointed a guy. His name is Zerubbabel. Now, how Zerubbabel got that appointment, we're not told. Um, it seems to me that the people would have appointed him, that the people, when Cyrus the Great was looking for a leader, he goes to the leaders of Israel and says, hey, who would be the guy that you would be comfortable with as governor? And they point to David's great-great-great-great-grandson, this guy named Zerubbabel. So he becomes the governor of Jerusalem. He becomes the leader of that area. The very first thing Zerubbabel does when he gets back to Jerusalem with these 50,000 Jewish folks is to rebuild the altar of burnt offering. This thing's massive. Uh, if you've never seen a recreation of this thing, it would take up our stage area, plus some. This is a very, very, very large square pier um, where they would have offered these sacrifices. He rebuilds that. He puts the foundation down. He builds up the wood, overlays it, the whole thing. Uh, it's back. The next thing he does is reinstitute the feasts. God has appointed uh, seven feasts throughout the year that the people ought to celebrate. These are uh, a way to remind Israel what God has done for them. Do you ever forget? Sometimes we forget, don't we, what God has done for us, how generous and kind he's been to us, and we just start kind of living life, and we just kind of go along, and then something awful happens, and we think, you know, it's been a long time since maybe something awful has happened, and I forgot during that time to return praise back to God, Right? Or if things are going really well, you sit there and think, God has been really, really generous to me. Astoundingly, amazingly generous to me. These feasts, these seven different feasts throughout the year in Israel, these were a reminder that God has been generous to Israel and that they ought to return thanks. At least three of these are commanded by God. He, he has demanded that these things happen. These are a way of staying pure and holy and a way of um, abiding by the Mosaical law, this, this law that brings them to God. And so the first things that Zerubbabel does when he comes back to Israel is to look at holiness. This guy's caught up with holiness. He wants the people to be righteous. He wants them to do what's right. This is a guy who's got his priorities in order, doesn't he? Uh, he his name literally means born in Babel, uh, Babylon, perhaps uh, a stranger in Babylon. So that's what his name means, and he fulfills that name pretty well. He was a stranger in Babylon, and now he's finally come home, and his priorities have always been with Yahweh, with Israel's God, with his, with his God. And so now that he's finally back home, he's setting matters straight. We're going to worship right, and we're going to return praise back to God. We're going to do this right. You know what happens though, right? If you're in uh, Ezra, look in verse, uh, chapter 3, the passage uh, that, uh, that Brian read for us tonight. They uh, are setting up the, uh, the foundation for the temple. Things have gone well, right? Zerubbabel, good, good, solid man. If you had been around in Zerubbabel's day, this would have been one of the guys you looked up to. 
He would have been a pillar of faith in your community. He would have been a giant, spiritual giant. That's, why, that's how we would have referred to him. He would be one of the guys that you walk up to and you're like, I've got a spiritual question. This guy is, for all intents and purposes, for all we know, a good, godly, righteous man who's focused on the right things. But what happens here in Ezra chapter 3, verses 11 through 13? He starts rebuilding the temple, doesn't he? He's got the foundation laid for it. And what do some of the old guys say? Some of the 70-year-old-plus the guys? Because they, they're the ones who are old enough, fortunate enough. God's allowed them to live long enough now that they remember what the old temple looks like. They remember the temple that Solomon built. They were young when it was destroyed, maybe in their 20s. But now 50 years have passed. But those memories are just as vibrant today as they were 50 years ago, and they can see Solomon's temple and all of its grandeur and all of its beauty and all of its preciousness. They can see it. It's just in their minds that they can see it. And now they're looking at this shack that Zerubbabel's building for God, and they're thinking, this is awful. And, and they just get discouraged. You ever been there? You ever been discouraged like that? They're so discouraged that building the temple stops. Not for a year, not for 10 years, but for 20 years, they stop trying to rebuild the temple. They're going to continue on with the sacrifices, morning and evening. They offer sacrifices, just like the Mosaical Covenant says they ought to. They are going to uh, observe the feasts. They're going to be reminded of how good and generous and gracious and kind God has been to them. He's even brought them out of exile one more time. It's not just Exodus. It's not just Egypt that they left. Now, when they take Passover, they remember, I was in Babylon this time last year, but now I'm, God's brought me back home. And that's, that's a cause for celebration, a cause for excitement, a cause for passion in me. I'm with God. I'm in, his, I'm in his corner. He's got my back. And so they're observing all those things, but for 20 Passovers, no temple. Look over in Ezra chapter 4. Let's start in verse 1. You kind of get some of the background over why they're so discouraged. Ezra chapter 4 verse 1. Now, when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the returned exiles were building a temple to the Lord, the God of Israel, they approached Zerubbabel and the heads of fathers' houses and said to them, Let us build with you, for we worship your God as you do. And we have been sacrificing to him ever since the days of Esarhaddon, king of Assyria, who brought us here. Now, this seems like a good deal, doesn't it? Don't forget the history here. Remember we said in the beginning... When Assyria and Babylon conquered Israel, what did they do to the people? They picked up a good portion of the people and they scattered them throughout their empire. But the rest of the people, they left there. Um, they're basically, uh, the people that they left there were basically farmhands. Uh, these were the poor, uh, just kind of your average Jewish person. These are not the aristocracy. These are not the elite. These are not the guys living in the ivory houses that Amos and Hosea talk about. These, these are just your average people. Um, but they, they've been left in the land and they got married to the people that the Assyrians and the Babylonians brought into their country because their religion's gone. 
The temple's gone. Jerusalem's walls are gone. Judaism is gone for all intents and purposes. And so these guys don't adhere to it, or, or do they? They don't adhere to the pagan, uh, to, the, to the, uh, the idea of not marrying pagans, of not marrying foreigners. But apparently they adhere to the Mosaical Covenant about sacrifices. And so they've been doing this by the time Zerubbabel and company come back to Jerusalem and start rebuilding stuff. They've been doing this for what looks like about 150 years. 150 years. That's a long time, right? Long time. And so they say that's the claim that they made. For the last 150 years, we've been worshiping your God. And now we would like to join in the effort of rebuilding the temple with you. Is that okay? You would think the Israelites would be like, yeah, come on in. You know, here's a hammer. You need some mortar? Great. The more the merrier. Why do they react like this? Especially in when you remember what was Israel's goal all along. What did Israel or what did God expect of Israel all along? From the time that they were a people coming out of Egyptian bondage. What did he expect from them? They were supposed to be a light to the Gentiles. They were supposed to bring people to him, right? They have the same, they had the same responsibility as the church does today. They were supposed to reach out and draw people to Yahweh, but they've fallen. They didn't do that, did they? What did they do? They became the holy huddle. They just kind of hung out among themselves and they were. We'll put this in quotation marks. They were righteous, but they, they weren't great at reaching out, were they? And so what does Yahweh eventually do? You're cut off from me. It's not just because they weren't reaching out. It's because of the idolatry and the immorality that they were also involved in. But that's part of, the, part of the problem here. They're not reaching out. They're not who they ought to be. And it becomes pretty clear here that when these Samaritans, these are, this is where the Samaritan race is, come, is going to come from, this intermingling of married people, or intermingling of these nations during the Assyrian and Babylonian captivities. That's where the Samaritan race comes from. And so when these Samaritans come up to Zerubbabel and company and say, hey, we want to help you rebuild the temple, Zerubbabel says, you need to get off my property. And they don't handle it very well, do they? But somebody says here in verse 3, But Zerubbabel, Yahshua, and the rest of the heads of the fathers' houses in Israel said to them, You have nothing to do with us in building a house to our God, but we alone will build to the Lord, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. You kind of see, maybe we're reading too much into the text here. I don't, I don't think so, though. You kind of see them saying, Who has commanded us to do this thing? Cyrus, the king of Persia. But who is really behind all of this? Yahweh, the God of Israel. Incidentally, he's also the one who's behind commanding you to bring people to him, Israel. But you fell down on that and you're falling down on this. You're listening to some king. We should be listening to the God of heaven. Listen to verse 4. 
Then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build and bribed counselors against them to frustrate their purpose all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia, and the reign of Ahaz, Ahaz, I can't say it, it's too many syllables. In the beginning of his reign, they wrote an accusation against the inhabitants of, of Judah and Jerusalem. You keep reading down, they're going, to, they're going to continue doing this all the way up until the reign of Artaxerxes, Xerxes' his son. So you don't know how long that is, right? It's about 100 years. When Zerubbabel says, no, nah, we don't need your help, we're going to rebuild the temple by ourselves, for the next 100 years, these guys are going to throw monkey wrenches into the Jewish plan to rebuild the temple. For the next hundred years, they're going to try to terrify them out of rebuilding the temple and try to, try to, 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 dis, to discourage them. And for 20 of those years, it works. Like a dream, it works. They don't rebuild the temple. For 20 years, don't rebuild it. And so we start thinking, how do you reactivate a discouraged faith? How do you reactivate a discouraged faith? What do you do? If you're in the middle of this discouragement, how do you overcome that? Well, let me share with you how Zerubbabel overcame that because eventually they do overcome this discouragement. So let me share with you how he does it. Maybe it'll make sense for you to do that as well. Zerubbabel has a friend, a counselor, a guide that will help push him into rebuilding the temple that will help motivate him, who will help encourage him, who will also hold him accountable for doing this thing that God wants him to do. Remember, Zerubbabel's motivations are solid. This guy's a righteous guy. He wants to do what's right. And in fact, started off so strong, but discouragement gets the best of all of us, doesn't it? really doesn't matter how mature you are spiritually. Discouragement can take you down, can't it? It happened to Zerubbabel. He's a giant, but he got taken to his knees because of discouragement. And it was some pretty significant discouragement, but it's no more significant than what you're going through. And so how does he revitalize that discouraged faith? Well, he's got a friend. His name's Haggai. And you can actually read his uh, prophecies in his book. Uh, it's in the Old Testament. He's an Old Testament prophet. His name's Haggai, H-A-G-G-A-I. And he will hold Zerubbabel accountable to do this thing that God wants him to do. He's going to motivate him. He's going to encourage him. He's going to keep at Zerubbabel. And when Zerubbabel gets a little discouraged, there's Haggai. There's Zechariah, who also has written a book. You can go back and read his, um, his prophecies as well. All, both these guys are they're spending their lives encouraging Zerubbabel to, re, to do this thing. You need somebody like that. If you're discouraged, or even if you're not discouraged, you need somebody like this in your life. Somebody who can hold you accountable. Somebody who can encourage you. Somebody who can motivate you. Who, somebody who stays with you, right? You need a brother or a sister who sticks with you and pushes you into greatness to do what God's called you to do. If Zerubbabel hadn't had Haggai and Zechariah in his corner, he would have never accomplished this. Discouragement would have taken him down. Held him for 20 years, right? He's not getting out of this on his own. He needs a friend. He needs somebody that can push him. He finds that in Haggai and Zechariah. And thankfully, God used them to rebuild his faith. Zerubbabel's rebuilding the temple. 
But in the midst of his rebuilding the temple, God's rebuilding his faith. And at the end of the story, you see him as a spiritual giant once again. So you not only need somebody who encourages you, holds you accountable, who motivates you. There's more than that, right? You also need a worthy goal. Some of us have goals that aren't worth the time that we put into them. You ever been in that situation? You ever gone down a road and thought, that wasn't really worth the effort I expended in getting there. <laughs> been there, right? We need a worthy goal. Zerubbabel's got a goal that's worth a lot, right? It's worth a lot because God has commanded him to do it, to rebuild this temple. And so he's got a worthy goal. You need a worthy goal. You need a God-sized vision, something that God is behind, spiritual growth, a better prayer life, better study habits, more involved with the congregation here, more sold out for Christ, more evangelistic, right? We need better goals. If you can have a good goal and you got somebody in your corner that motivates you encourage, and encourages you and holds you accountable to meet up to that goal, guess what happens? You stick with it. And eventually your discouragement will go away. It's not one of those things that you turns around overnight. It didn't turn around overnight versus Zerubbabel. It takes days, months to rebuild the temple. But it does get done. It does happen. He overcame the discouragement. Those are two of the ways, two of the things that he did to make that happen. Let me take you to one more passage. Uh, Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 22, verse 24 and 25. Listen to how God talks about Zerubbabel's predecessor. Remember, Israel's been in uh, Babylonian and now Persian exile for about 50 years. And so <clears throat> the previous king uh, has died um, and Zerubbabel is now the governor. He's taken his place. But listen to how, how God talks about this previous guy. It's Jeremiah 22, 24 through 25. As I live, declares the Lord, though Kaniah, that's the, the previous guy, Jeconiah, the son of Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, wear the signet ring on my right hand, yet I would tear you off and give you into the hand of those who seek your life, into the hand of those whom you are afraid, even into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and, and, and into the hand of the Chaldeans. He looks at Jehoiachin, uh, Jeconiah, and he says, you're not worth the salt you're made out of. If you were a signet ring on my hand, if you were the the identifier of me. If this was something that uh, you could identify me with, I would take it off and throw you away. You're not worth anything to me. Now, that's an interesting little tidbit there because check out what he says about Zerubbabel in Haggai. Chapter 2, verses 20 through 23. Some of you guys that don't have a paper Bible that's using your phones are real glad you brought your phone tonight, aren't you? Because you're like, Haggai, I don't know where that is. So read your Bibles, right? <laughs> Haggai chapter 2, uh, verses 20 through 23. Listen to how he talks about Zerubbabel in opposition to how he spoke about Jeconiah. Haggai chapter 2, verses 20 through 23. He says, The word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month. Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I am about to shake the heavens and the earth and overthrow the king." 
and to overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I am about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations and overthrow the chariots and their riders. And the horses and their riders shall go down, every one by the sword of his brother. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shelatel, declares the Lord, and make you, what? Make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. This guy became valuable to Yahweh because he didn't give up. He overcame the obstacles that were in his path thanks to someone who held him accountable and motivated him and encouraged him, as well as having a worthy goal to lean into. We can learn from the past, right? These, these old guys who were looking at the brand new foundation that Zerubbabel was laying for the, for, the, for the temple, looked back at it and said, Oh, this is awful, this shack, this, this is a mockery of God. You should be ashamed that you're building this. And Zerubbabel kind of looks at it and says, This is all I've got. You know, I've done everything I can. This is as much as, I've, as we can do here. We, we don't have the money like we had in Solomon's day. Remember, the, uh, the writer of Kings and Chronicles says that uh, silver and or gold was as common as, as rocks in Solomon's day. And Zerubbabel says, you know, we're, we're prisoners, basically. We're exiles. We don't have this kind of money. And so we've done what we can. These old guys are, ah, oh, the, the, the beauty of Solomon's temple. And they just can't get over it. Sometimes it's hard to get over your past, isn't it? Sometimes you look back and you kind of kick yourself for the things that you've done in the past. And that, that's what they're doing here. And they're allowing that discouragement just kind of to settle in, aren't they? And it not just affects Zerubbabel. He's not the only one leading this charge, right? There are several leaders among Israel who are leading this charge. And this discouragement filters through every single one of them until the work just comes to a dead halt. It's awfully easy to let our past and the mistakes that we've made grind us to a halt. I just can't do anything. I can't do anything right. I'm not going to be able to to get any further spiritually. I can't can't do this. That's what Zerubbabel thought. It's not what God thought. It's not what God saw in him, though, is it? When God looked at Jeconiah, he saw somebody he can't use because Jeconiah refused to be used by God. But when he looked at Zerubbabel, what did he see? Somebody who was valuable to him. You can do this thing. You can overcome obstacles and the hurdles that sin and Satan have placed in your path that you've tripped over in the past. You can't allow those things to continue to define who you are today. Even the great Apostle Paul would struggle with this idea, right? Uh, in his letters, he calls himself, do you remember his, his, the way he referred to himself? He says, I'm the chief of sinners. Why, Paul? Because I persecuted the church of God. He, he will never get over what he does to Stephen, what he did to Stephen, allowing the people there to throw rocks at him. I think that probably kept Paul awake at night. But you know what he didn't do? He didn't allow that to grind him down to a halt. I think Paul used that to push himself forward to greater depths of spirituality, to greater depths of service for the Lord. Your past matters, right? But how you look at it's important. So like these guys, 
the old guys who were looking at Solomon's, or were looking at the foundation of the temple that Zerubbabel was building and saying, oh, this is not like Solomon's temple. They were looking at their past and they allowed that past to grind them down to a halt. They allowed it to define them, didn't they? They allowed it to slow them down and discourage them. Some of us do that too, right? On the opposite end of the spectrum, you find another way to deal with your past. You look back on it and say, I've made those mistakes. I've learned from them. And now I'm a whole lot stronger. I'm a whole lot smarter. I'm going to attack this thing in a different way. I'm going to allow the guilt and the pain and the anger that I feel at my past to spur me on to greatness in God's kingdom. That's what he's looking for. That's what he's looking for. He's not looking for someone who's perfect. He's looking for you. To stand in the gap and to call people back to him. Just like Zerubbabel did. Right? He's looking for someone not who's perfect, but for someone who's willing to put in the work. Not allow their past to discourage them, but to allow their past to motivate them into greater service. We can't be stuck in the past. We've got to be looking forward to the future. I think God has incredible plans for this congregation. I think he can do incredible things. I think we've got a big work going on in front of us right now. You know, I've been thinking since COVID has come along. And you stop and think with me for just a few minutes. If you travel on up the river, what's the next church on up the river? It's Gallipolis, isn't it? Rio Grande. That's an hour away from here. How many people live between here and there? A lot. <laughs> whole lot. You go this way, down the river this way, what's the next congregation you find? South Point? Then on down the road, Ironton? Can we, can we help there? Can we work there? Can we, are there contacts down that way that we need to be reaching? Yeah. Believe it, right? You go on up the, on up the, uh, uh, the mountains here, Greaser Ridge is there. What are the congregations there? I don't know of one. Do you? An hour on up the road? I don't know of one. You can draw a circle around Proctorville for about an hour either way, and you won't find another Church of Christ. There's some good ones in Huntington, right? So maybe mark Huntington off, off our list and just go that way. Hour, all the way around us, just about. It's not anybody else. There's an awful lot of work to do in our future, isn't there? I think God's planted us here for a reason. Don't be so stuck on the past. Be looking forward to the future. There's great things involved. There's a great bit of prosperity right here. Not money, souls. Something God treasures so much more than money. He doesn't care anything about money. You know what he cares about? Souls. That's what he's after. That's what we need to be after too. Don't allow the past to define who you are today. Not as a congregation, not as a person. We've got a big work to do. Let's be about that. We can change our society right here. This morning we talked an awful lot about the society and how it was not in line with God's will, it's, it's sure not, is it? 
our culture's fallen pretty far from God, and it's not going to get any better. But right now, if we make a stand, you can change your neighbor's culture. You can change your relative's culture. You can bring them to Christ. That changes a whole legacy. Their children, their grandchildren, their parents. Who knows what God can do? Don't be so stuck on the past. Let's look forward to the future. It's bright. God's got a whole lot of work for us left to do. Let's get to it. Maybe you haven't been baptized tonight, and that's the first step that you need to make. Make yourself right with God. Maybe you've already done that, and you just need the prayers of this congregation to do the work that God's called you to do. We want to help in any way we can. I want you to come tonight as we stand and sing. remain standing if you will. Good evening church family. A couple of announcements before we are dismissed. Um, uh, please put in your calendar that this Wednesday will be Stepping Stones dinner at 530. Uh, so please uh, be here then. Uh, smoked turkey is on the menu that day and then John Galloway will be our guest speaker that uh, afternoon. Also, this coming Saturday will be Hope and Austin Hutchinson's bridal shower, and all couples are invited to this. Uh, the shower's at noon here at the building. Um, also, Sunday, next Sunday, we'll, we'll have the teen and middle school devotional at the Knapp's house. 
Um, also, we're still needing people to help out for Vacation Bible School. If you can sign up for uh, help out with Vacation Bible School, please sign up as soon as possible. Um, remember, continue to keep uh, these people in your prayers this week. Uh, Gail Hewitt will have uh, an eye procedure done, uh, so keep her in your prayers. Um, also, keep Roger Pryor in your prayers, Jennifer Baker, Jim Haney, Darren Baker, Charlie Boso, Caroline Davidi. And Babe Jones, Babe Jones isn't doing well, so keep her in your prayers. And Teresa uh, Literal, um, she's asked for prayers as well. Uh, she goes see a doctor tomorrow. She's in um, some really bad back pain. And uh, so keep her in her prayers and everything goes smoothly at the doctor's office tomorrow for her that they find out what's going on. That's all the announcements I have. Uh, if you had not had the opportunity to take the Lord's Supper, it has been, been prepared in the conference room. You may leave and do that now. We'll sing one more song and be dismissed in prayer. Sing the first and last verses of number 839, When All of God's Singers Get Home. What a song of delight in the city so bright. We'll be walking beneath heaven's fair dome. How the ransom will praise, happy songs in its praise, when all of God's singers get Please pray with me. Dear Lord, thank you for this day, and thank you for everything that, you, that you've given us, Lord. Thank you for, thank you for Chris for uh, saying the lesson, Lord, and please help us just apply it to our lives. Please help us all get home safely. Please, please just help us be more like you, Lord, and please just be with us on this walk, and thank you for everything that you've done for us, Lord. And in Jesus' name we do pray. Amen.